0: Hey, how's it going, New Hope? It's great to see you. My name's John. I'm one of the pastors. Welcome to our online gathering. Thanks so much uh, for joining us. We, we miss you. We look forward to when we can uh, regather in, in person, but we're grateful we have this opportunity uh, today. I love the arts. I love artists. My wife's an artist. I think artists have this really unique way of revealing truth. Uh, there's going to be a piece of artwork that comes up on your screen. It is a really large silver dragon. You can uh, go see it at uh, the Paris Zoological Park if you're ever in that vicinity. I want you to look closely. I don't know how, how good a resolution it is, but what is unique about the piece of art on your screen? There's something unusual about it. You can speak to your neighbor if you're watching on Facebook Live, you can enter it into the comments. What is unique? What is unique about this piece of art is entirely made of aluminum cans. Yeah, look closely. It's it's really when you when you understand that you're like, whoa, this is a whole deal known as recycled art, or we could call it junk art. Uh, we take things that we would normally consider trash or junk, and these artists look at it and say, huh. What could this become? What could I do with this? What could I make with this? How could I turn this junk into something beautiful? I want to show you a few more of, of these pieces of junk art. There's some really astounding works out there. So they'll come up on your screen. Same thing. Maybe shout out or put in comments when they come up what you think the, the junk art is made out of. So here's the first piece. It's It'll be two Horses kind of exploding out of the wall. What do you think that this piece of junk art is made out of? It's really beautiful. If you answered plastic spoons and knives and forks, you're spot on. You're like, whoa, that's incredible. Uh, next, next piece of, of junk art coming up, it will look kind of like white, angelic creatures. I think there's actually two pictures, so you'll see them in succession. What do you think that this piece of junk art is made out of. Go ahead and make a guess. Tell your neighbor if you're with someone. These pieces are made out of plastic bags. Crazy. Next piece, this is one of my favorite uh, coming up. Look very, very closely. I bet you can guess what this piece is made of. It looks like a beautiful tree, but if you're looking closely, you will see that it's made out of a, a McDonald's bag unbelievable and then finally uh, again two pieces here made by an artist Uh, I think her name is Maria Redding she calls it recycled landscape she goes to national parks finds trash in the national parks and then paints on them so you'll see a picture uh, painted on a hubcap you'll see another picture uh, painted on a plastic bottle it's really mind-blowing taking stuff that we would consider junk and trash, that we would throw it away. It has no use. And these artists create something beautiful out of it. They look at this trash say, what could this become? God is an artist. We know that from the very opening pages of Scripture. One of the things we attribute to God, we call him creator. God creates. It's in his very nature. And I will advocate that God is one of the, the greatest junk artists of all time certainly the greatest, God takes things in our lives, takes things in our world that we would consider throw away and looks at them and says, what can I make out of this? What could this become? How can I transform this into something beautiful? This idea is on full display in the life of the Old Testament person we refer to as Joseph. You'll find his story in Genesis 37, through 50. That was read uh, earlier. Uh, the first uh, scene of Joseph's life was read earlier. You can go ahead if you have your Bibles to, and turn to, to Genesis 37. We'll, we'll be exploring uh, the first couple scenes of Joseph's life today. That's 13 pages of scripture devoted to one person. That's a lot. So the writer of Genesis wants us to focus on Joseph. And I think it's because what Joseph experienced, what Joseph learns is still very true for all of us uh, today. We're calling this series, it's a seven-week series, You'll Get Through This. You'll get through this, Lessons from Joseph. We also have a big read. Earlier, uh, Hannah and Emily uh, mentioned this big read and some uh, book clubs around it. We're going to dig together and get in community. And it's a big read by uh, Max Lucado, who's a pretty famous Uh, author. It's also called, we kind of stole his title for this series, you'll get through this Uh, help and hope for turbulent times. It seems really fitting uh, for the times we're living in right now. Max is a fantastic author. I remember reading Max Locato books when I was a kid. Now I'm reading them to my daughters. I I did a little research on him. He's written 100 books and sold 130 million (laughs) copies. Uh, If you've never read Max Locato, uh, dig in. It's really great. He's a really great author. He's a really great pastor. He's been a pastor down in San Antonio uh, for 40 years. So I just want to encourage you as your pastor, as we enter into these seven weeks and we're grappling with a lot of deep questions about what's going on in our world. Questions that pertain to the heart of God and is God in control and is God good and what's up with all this evil and suffering. That's what this whole entire series is gonna be about. And I hope that you join us each week for the sermons, but I also hope that you... By the book, and you read the book, and you participate in some of these opportunities the book clubs will offer that will allow us to go deeper. That will lead from just kind of observing from a distance to deep engagement, and I think that will make us more like Jesus. So let's dig in. I think to, to understand, especially these first couple scenes, we have to understand a little context. Uh, Joseph was the great-grandson of Abraham and Sarah. You may know very little about the Bible, and that's fine. I'll just kind of sum things up here for you quickly. Some of you may remember a few of these details. But God called Abraham and Sarah, they were basically herders, uh, out to start a family that would give birth to a nation that would eventually give birth to the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So that's kind of the story we follow through the Old Testament. A lot is at stake. So Abraham's the original patriarch. The problem is they don't have a kid for a long, long time. And then finally they have Isaac. He's the son of promise. And then Isaac has uh, two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau is the older one. He has the birthright. You may remember this story. Jacob is conniving and steals Esau's birthright. And then he runs for dear life from his brother. He runs to his uncle Laban, who owns a, a, a big a big uh, piece of land and has lots of job opportunities. And And Jacob begins to work for his uncle Laban Jacob immediately notices Laban's daughter Rachel and falls in love like that and expresses this to his uncle and his uncle says okay well you know she's not my oldest daughter so that's a little out of order so you'll have to work for me for seven years and then there's this great line that it says that Jacob worked all seven years to win Rachel's hand in marriage and it felt to him but a day because he loved her oh so romantic and he did, and then and then Laban is conniving just like Jacob was. And so Jacob marries who he thinks is Rachel, but uh, Laban switches out his older daughter, Leah. So imagine that night, you get through the whole marriage ceremony, you lift the wedding veil like, whoa, it's a huge surprise. Then Jacob kind of comes back. He's really in love with Rachel and says, I, I'm in love with Rachel. What can I do? He says, you need to work another 17 years. So Jacob works 14 years Finally marries Rachel. So here it is. Jacob's married to two sisters, one of which he loves and one of which he was tricked into. And you think your family dynamics are stressful. It gets worse. Uh, Leah, the one who's not in love with, she's able to produce children. And she gives Jacob six sons and a daughter. Rachel, the one he loves, is not able to get pregnant. Not for a very long time. And then finally she does. And here comes our main character. Her two sons that she gives Jacob are Joseph and Benjamin. And by this time, Jacob's an old man, and he loves Jacob and Benjamin more than all of his other sons and daughters. And he loves Joseph the most. So now we have the context for our story. We need to understand this to really understand the tension, and it will be tension, that we we will see and feel in this first scene that was read Earlier. So let's go to that first scene. Picture it like the cameras panning in on Joseph. Let's imagine that we're there. Joseph's 17. He's a, he's a young man. And the first thing we're told by the narrator is that Joseph uh, tells on two of his brothers they did something wrong. So he goes to Jacob. He's a rat. and He's a tattletale. No one likes tattletales. And so the narrator is helping us get inside Joseph. We're not really meant to like him. He's, he's a spoiled brat. That we'll soon see. We're told there's a line in, that was read earlier that Jacob loved Joseph more than all the other brothers and made this special coat. We always call it, if you grew up in church, the coat of many colors. Andrew Lloyd Webber had a Broadway play called Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Coat. Uh, so I think it, that's formed in our minds. We don't know that it was multicolored. All we know it was a special tunic, uh, a special coat. Uh, it was better than anything any of the other brothers had the original readers would have been thrown by this because Joseph was 11 out of the 12 brothers birth birth uh, place was everything so the oldest brother he got all the inheritance he got all the respect Joseph's 11 down and yet he's the favorite so the original readers would have been like what is going on we must remember that Joseph was first the firstborn of, of Rachel the one Jacob loves so. So picture this: here's all the other brother brothers. Here's the spoiled brat, tattletale Joseph that gets his special coat. You can just picture him wearing the coat everywhere, making his brothers feel terrible about it. His brothers are working all day long in the hot sun. Joseph's playing. His brothers uh, get in trouble for anything they do wrong. Joseph does a lot wrong and gets off scot free. We know these scenarios, right? Joseph, uh, all the other brothers live down in the basement in the bunkhouse. In bunk beds, Joseph has the master suite with a view. For Christmas, all the brothers get windbreakers. Joseph gets a sweet leather jacket. That's what's going on here in the story. You can only imagine. Imagine your brother or sister being treated like that unfairly. What that would start to do in your heart. It gets worse. Joseph has a dream, and dreams were very important. Dreams were seen as coming from the divine, coming from the supernatural world. They were taken very seriously. Jacob has a dream one night that him and his brothers are out in the field and they're gathering grain into sheaves and these sheaves come to life and the 11 sheaves of the brother bow down to Joseph's sheave. Well, you would think that you would just keep that dream to yourself. Not Joseph. Joseph pronounces this dream to his brothers and then the narrator tells us, and they hated him. (laughs) They hate him. And then it gets worse. He has another dream this time the moon and the sun who we presume are his mom and dad and 11 stars all bow down and again you keep that to yourself you don't tell that dream to others joseph tells and it says again and they hated him all the more three times in the passage that was read earlier we're told that his brothers hated him remember in the bible when something's repeated we're supposed to pay attention so we're coming out of that first scene, and the last line is that Jacob, his dad, even though that Joseph was the spoiled brat and favored and could do no wrong, it was getting to a point where even Jacob was bothered, and Jacob called Joseph on his behavior, like, what are you doing? And it said that Jacob held this in his mind. He was concerned about it, and rightly so. He should have been concerned. Next scene, Let's uh, let's read together. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Genesis 37. I'm going to read verses 12 through 23. So the camera's panning to a new scene. Here we go. Now, his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph Israel's another name for Jacob. So Jacob said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send them to you. uh, Send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked, What are you looking for? And he replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? Well, they moved on from here, the man said. I heard them say, Let's go to Dotham. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dotham. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted To kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and to take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty and there was no water in it. So scene number two. Joseph's kicked back, he's got, he's got a spoiled lifestyle, he's doing nothing, his brothers are away with the flocks working, and his father comes in and is getting a sense, I need to get this kid working a little bit. And he says, hey, can you do me an errand? I can see Joseph being like, ah, come on, Dad, I'm playing video games, and I got social media to look after, and it's that kind of conversation, but finally he agrees. He says, very well, I'll go. So he goes, it's about 50 miles from Hebron to Shechem, four to five day journey. So Joseph makes that. He gets in Shechem, can't find his brothers. He's wandering around, finds a person that knows where they went. He says they went to uh, Dothan, which is about another 14 miles. So picture the scene. Here we go. I I picture Joseph kind of coming up a hillside in, in Dothan and his brothers are down in the valley with the herds. And in the distance, they see him. And it isn't like you see a sibling and you haven't seen him for a while and you're like, oh, it's Joe. I'm so glad he's here. Remember, they hate him. And that hate has been simmering and building in their hearts to the point that when they see him, and how do they recognize him from a distance? Well, he's wearing the stupid coat. (laughs) And they're like, it's hot. Why is he wearing the stupid coat? I can't believe that kid. And they, they hated him even more. And they said, Let's kill him. Reuben, the oldest, had a little bit of wisdom and said, let's not do that. Let's not shed blood. I think he's trying to make peace. Let's just put him in the cistern and and, and, and let whatever happens to him happen to him. So they, they kind of decided that right. A cistern was uh, carved out of limestone or maybe carved out of the mud and lined with plaster 12 to 15 feet deep. I think there will be a picture coming up two to three feet at, at the mouth and was to collect rainwater. It's a desert climate for times when it was dry. and this is one of those times where we're told the cistern was empty. but I guess if you wanted to keep a captive somewhere it was a great place to keep a captive. So here's a scene. Joseph's naive. He's you know, he's telling these dreams. he's got blind spots. He thinks he's loved because how can you not love him. And here he goes, right? He's coming in for the group hug <laughs> and no. And they take him, and it's very violent words in the Hebrew. They strip him of this coat. Maybe they strip him of his other clothes. And they take him and they throw him. They don't just lower him in gently, they throw him, so it's about a 10 to 15 foot drop into this open hole. Whoa. And imagine Joseph, the 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 kid that's just grown up getting everything he wants, no dirt under the nails. Hands are perfect for no work. Dad and mom give him everything he wants. All of a sudden, it's a totally different reality. Kind of like when suffering and evil come into our life. It comes out of nowhere and hits us. And we're, we're stunned. And our lives are wrecked. And we're checking our bodies for injuries. And we're like, what just happened? That's what's going on in this story. That's how quickly things turn. Now, to understand Joseph's story and to understand how it relates to our life, we have to look at it as an entire story. We have to know where the story ends. So if you don't know the story of Joseph, spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what happens. I hope that doesn't ruin it for you. But we're meant to look at it as one collective story. So we know over 13 chapters, by the end, Joseph ends up becoming the second most powerful person in the entire world. And Joseph ends up, God puts him in a position not only to save his brothers and to save the family and to save the nation that would bring us the Messiah, but he saves a lot of the world. So we know that's where we're heading. We know one day his brothers will meet him again and he'll be under totally different power dynamics. And Joseph will will give them uh, a, a key verse. And this is a verse, if you're looking to memorize it. Uh, I'd encourage you to memorize this verse. I think maybe you're going through something like Joseph went through now. Maybe you're in a cistern. Uh, This is a great verse to remember. And we'll come back to this verse again and again and again. So the verse is Genesis 50, 20, and it gives us perspective. And Joseph will say this to his brothers one day, long, long after this day that we're looking at. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish What is now being done the saving of many lives let me let me repeat that you intended to harm me but god intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives let's reflect on a few ideas and we're kind of kicking off the series here setting the context getting ready for what's coming over the next six weeks i want to give you three Ideas that come from the two scenes we looked at today, but also will follow throughout as threads throughout the series. The first is that evil exists. Very simple premise. It's difficult to argue when you look around and look at the data. But the story of Joseph reminds us that evil exists. What is evil? It's simply the opposite of good. And what is good? God is good. God, uh, everything that God creates is good. We see that in Genesis 1, that it was good and very good. But we see in the backdrop of even when our story is beginning in Genesis 1, we see already the presence of evil. We can piece together other scriptures, and the best we can tell is God created his angelic forces prior to humanity and gave them free will like he's given us because you have to have free will to have love. Some of those chose to go the opposite way, and evil entered in. So evil is in the backdrop of Genesis 1. We know this when God puts in the middle of the garden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So right from the opening page of Scripture, we have this, this battle between good and evil. And then we see our, the first humans choosing evil, choosing to go their own way. We see Cain killing Abel and we just see this trajectory of violence and mayhem and suffering and evil breeds suffering to the point where we come to Noah's day and we're told this line, that the thoughts of human hearts were evil all the time. So we're continuing as we look around and scan our world, watch the news, read the paper. You see it everywhere, this titanic battle between good and evil. We see it in boardrooms. We see it. In living rooms, we see it in relationships, we see it in churches, we most certainly see it in our human hearts. And one of the key themes of Scripture is that our good God doing everything in our good God's power to overcome evil. And that's the heart of what Jesus did on the cross. Now, theologians and philosophers will, will talk about two types of evil. One is moral evil. And that's generally the type of evil that's human to human. It's the things that come out of our hearts, the things that we do to one another. We cheat one another, and we lie to one another, and we murder one another, and we hurt one another. We talk badly about one another. That's moral evil. But there's also another type of evil that's referred to as natural evil. And that's the idea of this this evil that's coming from creation that we can't quite get our arms around, we can't quite explain a hurricane, or a tornado, or a tsunami, or a pandemic. That is what we refer to as natural evil. Something about evil entering God's good creation set it all wrong, and, 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 and wrong things happen, and that is the heart of, of evil in the world. The, there's this great, not great lie, but kind of sad and sobering line in, in uh, Romans, and it says that the creation has been subjected to frustration, it's the an effect of evil entering into God's good creation. So as we see cheating and stealing and hurting and droughts and floods and pandemics, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That comes from the existence of evil in our world. At the top of my prayer list right now, it, evil and suffering that comes from evil is well documented. At the top of my prayer list is, is a young couple that uh, lost their little boy and An older couple that lost their adult son to long-time drug addiction, a husband that just said goodbye to his his wife of 50 years, a a good friend that just got a terminal diagnosis, Um, uh, a young mother with two young children that just tragically lost her young husband uh, to COVID. Uh, a friend over in the uk uh, his family was grieving because of his his loss of life from a sudden stroke i could go on and on and on that's just my prayer list i bet your prayer list could add to that and each day i enter into the prayer list and i think about it i think about the existence of evil things are not the way they should be jesus jesus knew this jesus told us this in the gospel of john jesus said in this world you will have trouble Evil exists. This is brazenly on display in these first two scenes of the story of Joseph. You can't miss it. We see it in Joseph's arrogance. But we also see how quickly anger can turn to murder. It should frighten us. I mean, he was their brother, even though he was a punk. He was their brother. And they went from anger to murder to the next line we'll look at next week. They sat down to eat right after they did that to him. And that can happen in my heart. And that can happen in your heart. As Jesus told us, generally, uh, it's not the things outside of our hearts that are the problems. It's the things uh, inside our hearts. Joseph, he didn't think evil could touch him. He grew up in wealth. He was the favored son. Everything went right. He was on easy street. He thought he was above evil and suffering. But we should look at his story and remember, no one is. And if we live in flesh, and we all do, and we live in this world until Jesus comes and redeems it, Evil and suffering touch all of our lives. Secondly, and we'll get more hopeful here, but the foundation is evil exists and evil breeds suffering. We see that in Joseph's story. Uh, Max, in his book, gives this great line. And it's, it's, he, he, I think he would argue this is kind of the heart of the entire Joseph story. So we'll return to this line again and again in this series. And the line is this, in God's hands, intended evil becomes eventual good. In God's hands, Intended evil becomes eventual good. As we'll see in the coming weeks, it gets worse for Joseph before it gets better. We've got a lot of adventures to travel, a lot of learnings uh, from Joseph's life. It's going to get worse. It's going to get. He's going to end up in jail, and he's going to end up in slavery, and all these kind of things. If you know the story, you know what's coming. Along the way, Joseph, as best we can tell from the telling of the story, he never gives up. Never gives up. Why? Because I think Joseph knew what what Max said. That in God's hands, intended evil becomes eventual good. God has this incredible capacity, like the master junk artist, of taking evil and taking suffering and these things we just want to do away with. and, And it's terrible and it's junk and it's trash and transforming them into something beautiful or something good. The Hebrew word for good is the word tov, and it's all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. It's reflected all throughout the the New Testament as well. This word tov means uh, to be put together well, to be well-crafted, things fitting and working with precision and proportion and order and harmony. There is one word we don't talk about much when we talk about tov or the word good that we could properly translate it as, and it's the word Beauty. It's when you look at something and something is just working as it should be and you know it's exactly as it was intended. That thing is beautiful. God is good. We're told, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. God is good and God is beautiful. And we're told that in God's hands, the intended evil and the suffering that we endure in our flesh and in our world can be transformed into eventual evil. Good. Uh, Joseph, back to our main uh, memory verse in Genesis 50, 20. Joseph says, You meant it for evil, but God intended it for good. Joseph, when he says those words, he's using two artistic terms. The Hebrew word for, for mint is it points to this word for weaving. And the Hebrew word for intent uh, points to the word of, like, constructing or making a chair or being handy. It's a craftsmanship word, and I don't think that's a mistake. Joseph's telling his brothers down the line, he's like, you you intended it for evil. You allowed evil to have its way with you, and evil breeds suffering, but God took that in his hands. He reweaves it, and he recrafts it, and he remakes it. Into something good and beautiful and true. The Apostle Paul writes us to the Romans uh, in Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him and have been called according to His purpose. In all things, even evil, even suffering, God can take it and make it good and make it beautiful. Evil exists; it, it breeds suffering. Um, Most of us have encountered some sort of evil and suffering in our life. Many of you watching and participating today in our online gathering are in the midst of that. Many in our world are in the midst of that. And Joseph reminds us that we're not saying suffering, evil, or good, but Joseph reminds us that God can take suffering, evil, and make them good and make them beautiful like a master junk artist. Max says it this way in his book, and maybe this quote will whet your appetite for getting the book and joining in our big read. Max says, but God will use your mess for good. We see a perfect mess. God sees a perfect chance to train, test, and teach the future prime minister. We see a prison. God sees a kiln. We see famine. God sees the relocation of his chosen lineage. We call it Egypt. God calls it protective custody where the sons of Jacob can escape barbaric Canaan and multiply abundantly in peace. The story of Joseph is in the Bible for this reason, to teach you, to teach me, to trust God to trump evil. What Satan intends for evil, God, the master weaver and the master builder, redeems for good. Last uh, idea that is embedded in these first two scenes that will run throughout the series is the title of Max's book and is the title... Of our series, the last idea is that you'll get through this, and and I'll get through this. The key word there is through. It's a it's a it's a very biblical word. God led His people, the Israelites, through the Red Sea. God led His people, the Israelites, through the desert. The prophet Isaiah says it like this. This is a magnificent couple verses here. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And perhaps, and there's many other instances, perhaps my favorite instance of this word through, you may be familiar with it, is from King David's Psalm 23. And King David writes, even though I walk through the darkest valley. I will fear no evil for you're with me, your rod and your staff, they come from me. God, God gets us through stuff. That idea is everywhere in Scripture and it's certainly embedded in Joseph's story. It should be a comfort to us if we're sitting in a cistern. There's a catch. <laughs> the catch is this, that the journey through stuff, the journey through evil and suffering, generally takes time. Go back to Max's statement. You might not have noticed this word when I originally said it, but in God's hands, intended evil becomes, here's the word, eventual good. Eventual good. And I think that that's just a pastor being honest. I think that's someone who knows Scripture well, looking at the stories of Scripture and seeing that truth. Consider Joseph's story. Joseph's story spans 13 chapters, but it also spans about 22 years. From the moment he's in the cistern, the seed we just looked at, to the moment that his brothers stand before him one day, and he pronounces those great words and that great promise. 22 years. There's a lot of rough stretches, as we will see in this series, in those 23 years. Eventual. Good. We, we see it in the story of, of Noah. God was preparing Noah for like 120 years to build this ark. And imagine poor Noah building a really large ship in the middle of the desert where there's no water. Nice boat, Noah. He's hearing that for years. Moses, he prepared him for 80 years to lead the people out of Egypt. Before he called him the burning bush, Moses had spent the previous 40 years as a shepherd in the desert. Eventual good. King David is anointed as a young man and kills Goliath and everyone singing his praises. It takes about 15 years before he becomes king. And he spends most of those years on the run in the desert, falsely accused, where I don't think it's it, it, it's a surprise he writes some of his greatest psalms paul meets jesus on the road to damascus and then basically disappears for about a decade making tents jesus himself 30 years he's god incarnate before the real action started in his ministry uh god we we live in this instant gratification world where when evil and suffering come in we want it gone like that And it's okay to pray that way, it's okay to hope that way, and when God grants that, praise God. But the truth is, as we look at the story of Joseph and we look at what happens generally in our lives and and throughout Scripture, is that it takes time to get through something. Uh, God is more like the winemaker that puts the wine in the oak barrels and waits a couple decades to drink the good wine. God's not the type of artist that maybe sets up shop at the airport and you get your, your caricature painted in 15 minutes for 20 bucks and you're on your way. That's not God. God's Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel. That's how God generally works. Maybe you're at the bottom of a cistern right now. Maybe I am. There's a lot of that going on in our world And even post-pandemic, there will be a lot going on in this world. As Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Sometimes when you're at the bottom of a cistern, I'm sure Joseph felt this because we left him there this week. We'll pick up the story next week. What must he have been thinking? When we're there and life's just knocked us off our feet and evil and suffering have come in, we're wondering if we'll ever get out of it. It's like living in Portland in the winter. Will we ever see the sun? (laughs) Will it ever stop raining? And the story of Joseph Says yes, but it will take a while. That in God's hands, evil and suffering will become eventual good. Maybe you've already started uh, Max's book. I know we talked about it last week. If not, I, again, I hope that you'll jump in and start reading it. You'll encounter in the opening pages, he is a pastor. He's been a pastor for 40 years. That's why I love his writing, it comes from a true place. He talks about being by the bedside of of people that are dying, people that have had a spouse leave them, people that are dealing with sickness and pain. And he kind of has a little pastoral mantra that he has developed, and he opens the book by giving that to us. And I want to read that to you because I think it, it really rings true and it resonates with what we'll be learning in the life of Joseph. Max says this pastorally to people. I'm sure he says it different ways, but this is the heart of it. He says, you'll get through this. It won't be painless. It won't be quick. But God will use this mess for good. In the meantime, don't be foolish or naive, but don't despair either. With God's help, you will get through this. I have found that to be true in my pastoral ministry. I found that to be true in my life. I've certainly seen that on full display in the life of Joseph, and we'll be digging into that. Tom uh, Denninger, he is an artist And he uh, creates these portraits that he calls junk portraits. And he takes trash, and you'll see one come off of Marilyn Monroe. And look really closely. It's all pieces of trash. It's unbelievable what he is able to do. One of the junk portraits Tom created uh, was a self-portrait, and that will come up on the screen as well. I wonder as he did that what he was thinking. Uh, All these things that come into his life and my life that we look at and we just want to toss away, it's junk. But in God's hands, we begin to look at them and say, "What could God do with this? What, what could this become? Could God make this beautiful?" And I think the story of Joseph will tell us yes, and that should give us hope in these times. If we doubt this at all, uh, we we just look at the at the clear uh, cry of Scripture that tells us that God is the master artist and that God is always creating. Uh, in Ephesians, Paul says that we are God's workmanship. That is a, that's a that's an artistic term that God is constantly crafting and taking everything in our lives, the stuff that he doesn't want. He hates suffering and evil, and he's doing everything to eradicate it, but until kingdom come, it's still around, and God's able to take this and form it into our stories and to make it good and beautiful. And if we doubt this, We just simply need to look to to Jesus. Joseph prefigures Jesus. He foreshadows him. And in the story of Joseph, God takes all the evil and suffering that Joseph experiences it, and he one day uses it to bring life to many people and life to the world. That's exactly what he did in his son. The cross is the epicenter of evil and suffering. And yet God entered into that space and through the work of Jesus and the power of the resurrection, God took the cross and made it beautiful and made it transformative and made it a place that gives life to many. Jesus said you will have trouble in this world, but then there's a second part of that verse. He says, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Uh, Thank you for the story of Joseph that we're entering into today and what we can learn from Joseph. May we not look at it from a distance. May we step into it and may we inhabit it and may Joseph's story, become our story. May we see this powerful truth that in your hands, the evil and the suffering that you hate and you despise, but placed in your hands, you can take it and transform it and make it good and make it beautiful. Do that, Father, in our lives. Do that in our community. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.